0: Coming up on today's episode of the Real Lives podcast...
1: Didn't your company create a monster here that is in fact killing people today and turning people into addicts? No. The monster in this country is the epidemic of untreated pain.
0: The rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than one percent.
1: Perhaps one percent or less of those people actually become addicted. Fewer than one half of one percent. Less than one percent ever become Everybody addicted. show there's virtually no risk of addiction. Oxycontin is one of America's new prescription wonder drugs. In the right hands, it's a powerful painkiller. In the wrong hands, it can be a killer. So We have folks that literally will use fentanyl every four hours of their life just to function. Users realize that you could get these things wet, you could crush them and snort them, and you could get the entire pill immediately you know last year was about 75,000 people of the total 110 lost their life to opioids specifically fentanyl.
0: On today's episode I have on former DEA agent and owner of Eagle Six Training Brian Townsend. Now as you can see from the intro there I'm going to put a disclaimer in that there is a discussion of drugs, death, overdoses, all those sorts of things. So if you are sensitive to that then maybe don't watch this but I feel like this is a really interesting topic with a really interesting person who gives a a valuable insight into what it's like to deal with the drug epidemic in America especially the opioid problem um, both from the the street side of it and also from the pharmaceutical side of it as well. All Brian's links will be down in the description below so if you want to ask him a question feel free to email him as well Uh, I'll provide his email um, in the description so yeah please reach out to him and Enjoy the episode with Brian Townsend. Brian, welcome onto the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Um, Do you want to tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah,
1: thanks for having me on. My name is Brian Townsend, and uh, I'm a retired law enforcement agent. I was with the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, for 23 years. And prior to that, I was a police officer in, in Southwest Missouri for about five years. So 28 years total. I retired last year, and now I have my own business, do a lot of training and consulting um around the the world and uh
0: that's me amazing so why the dea what drew you to a career in law enforcement
1: i'd actually been interested in law enforcement when i was younger uh high school age um didn't know how i was going to accomplish that but i had an interest in it um actually worked with a, a woman whose husband worked at the fbi academy in quantico virginia I grew up and, uh, and went to school, probably 20, 30 minutes from Quantico, Virginia, which is where the FBI and DEA Academy is. And, uh, they weren't given tours, but he'd worked there for a long time and was able to, uh, set up a a special visit for me with the FBI. And, uh, when I was there, I saw the DEA guys and, and that was what I decided that that's what I wanted to do. Just had this interest in law enforcement, uh. Again, I didn't know how I was going to accomplish that goal, um, and and at, during college, uh, I had some friends that were uh, getting in, into law enforcement uh, after uh, their degree, and and uh, they recommended the lo- a local law enforcement route, being a police officer, which I'd never considered. I always thought I was going to go DEA or, or some type of federal agency, um, but again, I didn't know how that route would go, um, but I thought, well, local law enforcement sounds fun, and and uh, I did that and it was great. I worked for the Joplin Police Department which is in Southwest Missouri and a great police department, a great city. A lot of experience. Um but uh but after 5 years I was I was ready to move on to the DEA and I was fortunate enough to get hired and and uh and spent the next 23 years of my uh very rewarding career with the DEA.
0: Amazing. So what was it that drew you to law enforcement then? What about it was like the the thing that made you tick? helping
1: people, helping communities. Um, my interest was drugs. I I saw what drugs were doing, um, to people. Um,
0: was, was that firsthand experience sort of, you know, close friends, family, that kind of thing, or was it like just you were seeing in the streets what was going on
1: more in the streets? I I had a, I had a good family, uh, didn't have mom and dad addicted to drugs or, or, or siblings that were using drugs. Uh, but I did see it uh, in, in the community I lived in. Uh, didn't grow up poor, but I certainly didn't grow up rich either. Um, and drugs impacted, uh, you know, impact every community. And they certainly impacted my neighborhood growing up. And I saw what they did firsthand to, to friends and neighbors and uh, just had an interest in in, Working to combat that problem, and again, I didn't even know what the DEA was at the time. Um, but uh, but
0: yeah, just th- just that interest grew, sparked from there, really. So during the early years, what was the what was the main problem <laughs> that you were facing? Because obviously, compared to now, it's probably a very very different scenario.
1: Absolutely, a lot of hallucinogens, uh, marijuana, uh, which is which in- interestingly was not as potent as the marijuana of today is, uh, but a lot of pills, um, which are a problem now but but different types of pills more of the uh like i said a lot of the hallucinogens the lsd um ecp things like that i'm not as old as i may look but uh (laughs) the drugs are definitely different uh when i was Mm young than they are now
0: yeah because obviously now what's one of the main things that i want to get into is this opioid epidemic that the the world is facing really Um, but before that so, obviously, with this, the the rise in pills at the time, obviously the hallucinogens and things like that, and marijuana, which is now obviously legal in most, well, some states. What was the most frustrating thing about dealing with those things? Was it the the, the sort of rapid rise in them, or was it more trying to trying to police it, so to speak? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. Um, just just seeing
1: firsthand what they did to people. You know, they, they're, they're, these drugs are very addictive and they just take over and people make, uh, really bad decisions after taking the, taking the drugs, a bad decision, but, uh, you know, and then to, to keep that habit, you know, they get involved with, uh, you know, crime, uh, theft, burglaries, things like that, just, just so they can afford to, to, to purchase more drugs. Um, and it's just, just the devastation it does on the, on the person and then the family, um you know, they lose loved ones. Um, they steal from loved loved ones. Um, so they destroy those relationships. Um, and then it just, just the the other crime, I call it the collateral damage, the associated crimes that drugs bring. I mean, just, just all of it really was, is, is, is disheartening to see.
0: So what was your role then within the DEA during those early
1: years? So I, I, I joined the DEA as a special agent. I, I was a, a criminal investigator. So, uh, I investigated drug crimes, um, and, and our role at the DEA is to go as high as we can in the uh, let's say call it the food chain, the organizational chart. you know ultimately, we want to get to the uh, the folks responsible for uh, for distributing the drugs um, and that typically is like the cartels or at least that that level of an organization you know we, we go after violent or uh, organizations, violent persons who distribute
0: uh, drugs in our communities. How hard is it? To actually capture the guys at the top of the 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 ring, so to speak. Because obviously you see in these different, you know, these different shows where you they're looking to prosecute these entire sort of organizations, but it always starts with the guys at the bottom who don't know much. So it's very hard to get information out of them. Then it's the guys just above them and above them and above them, and then it's like years and years down the line before they actually get the guy that they want. So Where do you even start when you come to realize there's a new organization?
1: Yeah, you try to start as high as you can. I'd say most of the time you're probably mid-level. You know, you have someone that uh, is not small, um, at least for a DEA investigation. You know, they're moving um, a considerable amount of, of, of weight. Um, but th- they're probably not the largest either you know that maybe they were maybe there was someone who was arrested and cooperated and give us and gave us information on someone or maybe they were arrested themselves and, and decided to cooperate and and uh, and gave us information but it takes time I mean I, I worked investigations that literally took years before we saw prosecution but ideally it's 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 several defendants it's uh, I don't like single defendant cases you know if, if we're only arresting one person moving on then you know, what are we doing? Um, we really need to target the organizations as a whole. Um, and we have some incredible uh, federal laws in the United States, like conspiracy laws. And uh, and we use those to target these organizations. Uh, but it is, it's very difficult uh, to go after them. But we've had a lot of success, um, law enforcement. I mean, look at the Sinaloa cartel. I know it's still a very dangerous cartel, but uh, El Chapo, I mean, now he's uh, rotting in prison. where uh, Hopefully he'll... Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's be there's been a recent thing, hasn't there, about the fact that he's been trying to communicate somewhat with his sons or something. Yeah. Because obviously they're now in they're in hiding because they're probably facing the same thing that he is, where they'll be rotten in prison for the rest of their lives.
1: Yeah, that and just, just there's a lot of fighting for control with Sinaloa Cartel between them and, and other, other folks who felt like they were in that uh that command uh, structure of the organization and uh and and so yeah it's it's but uh, still a deadly cartel and still one that uh uh brings in a lot of fentanyl into the United States um the other the other cartel of interest is C- CJNG which has, has gotten a lot of uh they're using El Chapo's arrests and all the associated uh internal fighting to uh to try to take more ground more territory and and and, and be the
0: the number one as obviously um special agent for the United States and an organization that runs within the United States, how, how much harder is it dealing with organizations such as the Sinaloa and cartel whereby obviously they're under completely different jurisdiction with, with being in Mexico.
1: You know, that, that's one thing that DEA has a, as a, we have a a great relationship with uh, many countries. I mean, I, I I don't know the exact number, but I think we're in 86 or 87 countries that we work with the governments. You know we have offices in the consulate or the embassies, and uh, you know our interest is uh, stop stopping the importation of drugs into the United States, and we also want to gather intelli- intelligence and figure out what's the overall drug landscape look like in the world, and and how's that impact the United States, and how can we, and also how can we use that intelligence to help the the, the host nations that we work with in their fight against uh, drugs and crime as well, but. But uh, you know, we, we have some success down there. Um, there are some uh, I can't I can't say there's not some roadblocks and some in some problems, especially in Mexico, uh, with corruption and, and and there's been a lot of political things that have happened in the last few years, uh, specifically with the DEA and and some top members of their government. Uh, but uh, but there are a lot of good people down there, a lot of men and women who are dedicated to making their country safer and and uh, and and. You know, thankfully, those people exist and, and, and are and are risking their lives to uh, to make Mexico a better
0: place. Yeah. I was going to say that's probably one of the hardest things within a country like Mexico where the cartels hold so much control over certain aspects of the country that these people are still willing to provide information, even though it would mean that probably them and their entire families would be murdered for the fact that they've given information. Absolutely. Uh, it's very uh, courageous,
1: very noble of, of those people, but that's how much they care about their country and care about, uh, you know, making it a better place.
0: Going back to, obviously, all of the drug aspect and specific drugs, you mentioned fentanyl. So at what point were drugs such as fentanyl on the rise? Because, like, me, like, growing up as a kid, you hear about, like, cocaine and meth and things. Like, you hear about these drugs in the news. You never... And then all of a sudden, I think it was probably like three or four years ago, fentanyl just blew up and it was everywhere. It was in everything. So when did it become a huge thing for, on your side?
1: We actually started seeing fentanyl more around the 2013 uh, timeframe, about 10 years ago. I mean, it'd been around prior to that, illicit fentanyl, but uh, where it was at nodal school levels, where we started seeing it more in our lab reports was around the 2013 timeframe. And it was a, it was originally just a cut in heroin. I mean, the this the, the everything about fentanyl is, is very close to heroin. I mean, they're 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 opioids. And uh, slowly beginning, I'd say about 2013, we started seeing more and more fentanyl where it was replacing the heroin because it's a synthetic. And what I mean by that it doesn't there's there's no longer a need for the plant or any type of chemical synthesis from the plant to a uh, let's say a pharmaceutical Um, it's just, it's just chemicals. It's just, it's a lot easier to make. So you're not dealing with the plants or the the logistics or any of the problems with, with associated with that. And it's, uh, the chemicals are easy to, 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 obtain, especially, uh, you know, the cartels obtain them in, in bulk quantities from, from China primarily. Um, it's not hard to make. And they already have the distribution routes set up. I mean, the, the distribution same distribution routes we see for, for cocaine and methamphetamine and some marijuana um, from Mexico into the United States already exist. So, so you know, they already have that the infrastructure set up. And, uh, and yeah, they, they move uh, record amounts into the United States now. Um, but, yeah, so about 10 years ago is when we really started seeing it uh, take over. And now, at least in the United States, heroin is very difficult to find. Uh, very very difficult to find Uh, in fact it's interesting you talk to some of the users or or people that get arrested and cooperate and they'll tell you that we'd love to have heroin again Um, but but fentanyl has has just taken over
0: so what is it about fentanyl other than obviously it's easier to make and stuff what is it that is more addictive about it and also is it am i right in saying it's cheaper to make which is why they now lace it in things such as you can find it in cocaine. You can find it in, obviously, in place of heroin and things like that. Yeah, absolutely cheaper to make and
1: wildly addictive. I mean, opioids in general are very addictive, and fentanyl is. It works on very short duration, so on average about four hours. Um, so we have folks that literally will use fentanyl every four hours of their life just to function. Wow. Um, and it doesn't. It doesn't take a lot either. I mean, we're you know you look at you look at medical grade fentanyl, um, which is. Good, by the way, Um, um, you know, primarily in the patches or the lollipops. I mean, the reason they wear the patches, especially cancer patients who need it, is it releases a very, very, very small amount of fentanyl into the body over an extended period of time. Um, Where illicit fentanyl, um, you know, they're just they can't take a lot because it'll kill them. But uh, but it's just incredibly powerful at very small amounts but again, for short durations. So they're constantly using it. So more people are going to die because, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it doesn't take a lot of fentanyl to kill you only literally about two milligrams of fentanyl, which is just a few granules of salt or sand, um, literally just two milligrams. Um, but, uh, the traffickers, the cartels, they don't care. They don't care about human life. This isn't about, uh, you know, trying to make a, uh, Push drugs in society for 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 any good. It's 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 all about the money. So for every person they kill, they know they're making more addicts, um, and, and that's only oh. what this is about: is the money.
0: It's it's crazy that a drug so potent and so powerful has obviously come to be one of the most addictive in the world. And the fact that we thought heroin was as bad as it was, and then now there's this sort of heroin on steroids so to speak that is just completely taken over and you can see the effects on people's lives like where i live currently in melbourne you can see that like people are folded over in the streets and they just can't they can't move like where i live is not it's not like a very well-off area um and you can really see it there's constantly police and ambulance around because people have overdosed and got into fights or like because of drugs. And it's crazy. to, It's just crazy to see how it affects the world so quickly.
1: Absolutely. It, it really is. It's just, it's devastating communities, uh, families and communities and, and it's, and it's killing folks. It's poisoning folks, especially our young folks. Um, our, our adolescents have a greater chance of dying now of, 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 of drugs, specifically fentanyl than any other age group. It's, it's incredible. I mean, we in the United States alone, we lose three hundred people a day to drug poisoning, and about two wow. thirds of that is because of opioids. and when I say opioid, yeah. I, I probably ought to just say fentanyl because that's that is the opioid that's killing everyone. so I mean, last year in this oh. country alone, we lost one hundred and ten thousand people. It's a record, huh, yeah, you know when I was a police officer, uh we lost four or five thousand people a year and i'm not minimizing those people i mean but it's a small amount compared to where we are now i mean it is it has literally changed the drug landscape um uh, really of the world
0: yeah i was looking at uh, an article yesterday about the opioid epidemic and they reported that in 20 in 2021 75 of overdoses in the u.s were opioid related and there was something like over 200 people per day overdosed from opioids. And that is a wild start. Absolutely. I agree. You
1: know, I, and sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our, our head around those numbers. So, you know, when I talk to folks uh, about opioids and fentanyl, and I start with the, the number of people who have been poisoned to death by this, I give those numbers. And then, you know, last year was about 75,000 people. Of the total one hundred and ten, lost their life to opioids, specifically fentanyl. And in, in America, American football uh, is, is a big is a big deal. And most of the NFL stadiums, I you know, here I live in Missouri, uh, our stadium in Kansas City holds about seventy six thousand people, Arrowhead Stadium with the Kansas City Chiefs. So I always tell folks, uh, you know, think of your football stadium. That next time you are at a game, look around. That seventy five thousand people is what we're losing every year because of
0: fentanyl. It's staggering, incredible. Yeah. When you put it like that it's you, you can't comprehend it really can you no, like no. just that but to think that every single person in that stadium if you were to put like that into like they would just be dead as a result of opioids it's wild
1: Very yeah, sad. Like,
0: so in terms of from the dea's perspective when obviously you started to see more lab reports coming in of like these more fentanyl and things and that heroin was actually being sort of replaced. What was your reaction to that and how did you begin to deal with it? You know, at first I I don't think the law enforcement community really we were
1: kind of blindsided by it. And I think we were when we realized something was happening, I really think we were drinking from fire hoses. We were trying to we were trying to respond. And and our laws really hadn't caught up to it at the time either. I mean, it take it took a lot of of, 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 these drugs to get any type of federal prosecution. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a challenge. And like I said, I, I really, I, I think it kind of snuck up on us. You know, we started seeing fentanyl more and more in our lab reports and, and then there was the concern that it was a, uh, there was a danger to law enforcement and first responders just to be around the drug, like literally just, just, just to be around it. Um, and then we started seeing a huge spike in deaths and really around 2016, if you look at the number of people who were dying from opioids, um, at least in the United States, it was two or 3000 people a year consistently probably for 20 years. And then, like I said, around that 2013 time period, if you start looking at those numbers and you put that on a, on a, on a graph, it's literally like this, this flat line, couple thousand people a year. And then all of a sudden it just turns up and just goes vertical. Where we're at seventy-five thousand people a year now. We went from two thousand to seventy-five thousand people almost overnight. So yeah, and law enforcement—that's what—that's what we noticed is the number of people that were dying, you know. But but again, I mean, I, I as much as I'd like to say we were prepared for it, we weren't. I mean, we we weren't. It was tough. It was a lot of challenges. These cases were uh, were hard to make, but uh, but 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 we you know I, there's a lot of dedicated men and women in law enforcement who uh, who did great job and continue to do a great job um, targeting these organizations that uh, especially the, the ones that are uh, bringing in a lot of fentanyl in
0: what does the pro- projection look like for the sort of the next five to ten years of how bad this could get
1: our, our 2021 numbers to 2022 didn't jump as high as even myself thought they would they're still too high. Don't, again, I'm not trying to minimize these, these folks who, who've lost their lives. But um, We went from about 109,000 people a year to 110,000 people a year. Um, so if there's any any good out of that, if, if you wanna call it good, is the fact that it wasn't as, as high. But I, but I tell you what, I, I still think, and I hope I'm wrong, I hope, I hope you find me in, in a couple years and, and laugh in my face and tell me I'm wrong, but I still think it's gonna go higher. And, and the bigger concern is, is, I mentioned earlier, the adolescents, the kids. I, uh, I read a lot of studies and things like that, and, and every single study I can find shows the number of kids turning to drugs and alcohol to cope with stress and anxiety and just, just life's problems, mental illness, things like that, is staggering. You know, there's a study that came out last year in the United States that said uh, 44% of teenagers feel persistent feelings of sadness and loneliness. And then I thought, well, let's look, Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID in 2019, it was about 36.7%. So about 37% of teenagers who literally, and it, it's quote, feel persistent feelings of sadness and loneliness. And why I mention that is because what do these kids turn to when they feel sad, when they feel lonely? Drugs and alcohol. I mean, they tell you that in, in, in surveys year after year after year. University of Michigan does one. I mean, it's it's amazing. And 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 it's scary because a lot of these kids are gonna use drugs that are gonna be laced with fentanyl and they're gonna die from first time drug use. It's already happening. And that's why the mortality mortality rate for, for young folks is so high, is because think about it. If if you use drugs in your life, it was more experiment with drugs or use drugs, or at least when you started, it was more than likely in your adolescent years. And now they have these these kids who are are feeling sad and they're feeling lonely and they're and they're dealing with mental health issues, especially in this country, because we don't we don't help our mental health folks very much. Um, they turned to drugs. And now we have dr- the landscapes change where we have fentanyl laced in everything. And they're turning to a drug and they're using Percocets and, 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 and Loracets and, and Adderall and, and Xanax and you name it. And, and all it takes is two milligrams for them to die. So this isn't your typical, uh, you know, stereotypical drug user who's, you know, laying in an alley, which, you know, that happens as well. But these are your kids who are are going to school. They're, they're playing sports. And for whatever reason, they decide to, to experiment with drugs, which like I said, happens most likely in their teenage years. And they're literally dying from first time drug use because two milligrams is enough to kill the average person. It's, it's incredible. It's staggering. So I know this is a long-winded answer, but in the next five years, I, 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 Sadly, I think we're going to see more and more of those those statistics, especially in our younger people. I again, I hope I am wrong. I, I truly, truly. Um, but but if you look back in the last five, ten, fifteen years, that's what we're seeing.
0: Yeah, I think as well. It it's crazy to say it, but when you correlate it with the rise of social media, which means that people are connected in one aspect, but they lose the connection in another because every like you look you look now. And you see it in kids where they're out with friends, but they've got like earphones in. And like I I said, I said to my brother a few months ago, I was like, that is wild to me that like, you're out with your friends and you will not like, you can't take whatever's going on in here out. So they're like, there's, there's no connection. There's no actual like, you know, whether it be mental or physical connection with whoever that you're with. And then they just sit, you, you see them, they sit together and they'll just scroll and scroll and scroll. And there's no wonder that really they feel lonely and they feel alone and it's like then you you look at it like so they're now feeling lonely because of this they feel like they've got no friends or what have you and then it's like what do i do and it's like in that moment probably it's, it's just probably a lapse in judgment more than anything that then they turn to this thing that they see as like it'll it'll cloud it for me or whatever that may be and Like, obviously I'm not saying it's just social media that's caused that. It's obviously other things, but I think it's, I think it's a massive problem in terms of how it's making younger, the younger generation feel and then how they're then dealing with that. I
1: couldn't agree more. Um, it, we are losing the power of communication. I love social social media, but we are literally losing this. We're losing the, the, the face to face contact that is so critical to, to human beings. Um, and, and it's sad, and, and especially our young people, because we're not coping with with, with struggles and failure and, and all the things that come from, from face-to-face contact. Um, I don't have all the details, but there was a psychologist in the United States uh, back in the 1940s or 1950s. I want to say his name was Dr. Dr. Alexander or something like that, but he did this study on on rats, and it was called Rat Park. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. Uh, uh, you know, they had rats in a cage and they had, they had bottles in there and they were laced with, uh, I think, believe cocaine. And uh, when they were put in the cages, they would consume this. There was two bottles. There was one with cocaine, one with water. And when they were put in these cages alone, they would literally just drink from the cocaine until they overdosed and died. Seldom would they go to the water, and if they did, they would go back right back to the cocaine. Well, this psychologist came around and says, "Well, is let's explore this a little more." So he made this thing called Rat Park, and it was not just a cage with one rat; it was a cage with a lot of rats, so they could do whatever rats do—have sex, go on the little wheels, whatever. (laughs) And he had the same two uh, water bottles, or I'm sorry, the same two bottles in that cage—you know, one with cocaine and one with water. And what's interesting is in this particular scenario, when they were in this park with other rats, if they went to the one with cocaine, it would just be very quick and they'd go to the water and it was almost a reverse. And it's, and it's, I, again, I don't, I don't remember all the details of this, but that's basically the gist of it. And what I, what I realized is, look at that power of community. And I know those are rats and not people, but I think, I think we have that same need where we need this communication, we need this type of bond with people and we're losing it with social media. And I love social media. Don't get me wrong. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have, to have news at your, your, your fingertips uh, instantly and to communicate with people instantly. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, especially our young people who who don't know how to cope with things, you know, and, and, or, or they, they, they post a photo, fo- a picture and, and maybe there's not enough likes of it, you know, and, um, or the, the cyber bullying i mean you could go on and on and on how social media is really impacting especially our young people
0: yeah going back to that obviously the difference between rats and humans i think we are very similar in terms of the fact that it's just animalistic tendencies you look back at like you look at all types of species mo- majority of species work in packs they, they never really function alone it's ve- like it's very rare that you will see that and it's because without that community they feel like they can't function and it's just, it's the same as humans if you live on your own and if you live far away from family and if you live, you know you you moved to a new place and you struggle to make friends whatever that may be ultimately you've got you're gonna feel alone and you're gonna feel like there's no hope because when you've lost everything that you once had and you see it it's like what what do i do and then rather than you know Seeing it as just, I can just go out and make friends because you're already in that headspace. It's then so, so hard for people to go, actually, I can just go out and just go meet people and things like that. And it's even as simple as like, you go to a you go to a bar now. How, how rare is it now compared to 10, 15 years ago that like say a guy will just go up to a girl in a bar. It won't happen. Yeah. People don't do it because they've got okay. Tinder on the phone or whatever it may be. So it's just simple things like that, that now we've just lost this ability that we've had for thousands and thousands of years because of the things on our phones that are now, it's just gone.
1: Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, We've got to figure out a way to reverse that.
0: Mm, absolutely. So let's also move on to, so we've talked about opioids in terms of illegal opioids. Now let's get on to... Pres- the prescription opioids because i think that is a huge huge problem in terms of so when I, I obviously had knee surgery what two two and a half weeks ago and i was prescribed oxycontin and i didn't i knew it was an opioid i knew it was like pretty heavy opioid didn't know too much about it and then the i was so i was taking it because of obviously i had the bleed into the joint it was quite painful and as i'd taken it I was watching Painkiller, the new documentary on Netflix, and oh my God, did that send a shock to my system when I was like, I cannot, be, I cannot be taking this stuff. No way can I be taking this stuff.
1: I got so many text messages from friends, like, have you watched this yet? Uh, no, I watched a Dope Sick on Apple TV um, about the Sackler family in Purdue, um, but I haven't watched Painkiller yet, but I will. Um, yeah, they're they're very addictive. You know, under under proper medical care, um, you know, opioids are a great thing. They they do help with pain. Um, problem is, they can be very addictive. Um, it's interesting the stigma they carry now with when people who are legitimately need them, you know, kind of question you know, like like you were saying, like, mm, is this a good idea? You know, and and uh, uh, unfortunately, I lost my father uh, to to cancer last year. And, uh, I remember towards the end of his life, uh, the doctor was, was prescribing opioids and, uh, and him and my mother were like, Whoa, you know, we don't, we don't want that. You know, we don't get addicted. And I, you know, I had to say, dad, you know, I'm you're, you're dying, you know, and as hard as that is, um, but it's just interesting that I, I saw it firsthand that, uh, that reluctance, you know, to, to, to take opioids.
0: Um, yeah. I've. It, from my perspective, it's because I've seen it firsthand what it does to people. Like, um, so for example, my, my nan, she fell down the st- so she was. I'm gonna say it's medical neglect, but I'm not gonna like. I'm, yeah, I, that's just sort of what what I think it is. Um, and she was prescribed opioids. She was on OxyContin. and she was on. I think she was on morphine as well and because essentially she had polio when she was a kid and she now has what you would call post-polio syndrome so she's in a lot of pain um and she fell down the stairs because she was so spaced out fell down the stairs and managed to make a way to the phone to call my granddad and my granddad was like i'm gonna i'm gonna call an ambulance just to make sure you're okay and it turns out she'd broken a shoulder but she had no idea she'd broken a shoulder because her ability to perceive pain has gone and then it happened again, where she fell. They they were replacing the oven, and she fell onto the oven and shattered a wrist, and had had no idea she'd shattered a wrist. And it's because of that that that's what I that's why I stopped taking it is because it it put watching painkiller get like it it more put into perspective that actually like at my age, feeling pain is actually a positive because if I can if I can perceive pain properly, then I can get the help that i need if i need it but if i can't perceive pain then i will just endure it and keep taking the same thing just so i don't feel it if that makes sense
1: it does make sense uh it's scary it's scary uh it's it's scary I that's probably the most powerful word i can use there i mean it's uh it's amazing what what these drugs can can do um absolutely You know we saw prescription drug abuse really take off in the 1990s uh with oxycontin um from from purdue i mean that that was the next big that was the huge wave of addiction uh, that ultimately drew into uh to more heroin use and then fentanyl and where we are today i mean um, i talked about that quite a bit what happened in the 1990s um with the release of OxyContin in 1996 by Purdue and, and what that did um, to the whole landscape of, uh, of drug use. Mm.
0: So in terms of Purdue Pharma, let's go through sort of, cause if, for people who won't know, let's go through why that was such a huge problem and why it was in such an eye opener for people.
1: Yeah, so so one of the things that uh, is interesting and is, is there was this push in the medical community to treat pain and there were a lot of these pain societies that popped up in the mid-1990s. And they actually ultimately made pain a vital sign. And they told doctors that they needed to treat pain. And if they didn't, they were cruel. And if they didn't, they were negligent. And they convinced the medical community who, for, for, for the most part around the world, really hadn't, I mean, they'd been using opioids, but, but not to the extent that they would after they were told that opioids weren't as addictive as they were thought to be and that, uh, again, they were cruel and negligent if they were not treating patients with with especially chronic pain. And Purdue, uh, they were able to get FDA approval for OxyContin. Oxy means oxycodone and uh, cotton means continuous. So the idea is, and this is how they got FDA approval, is that I mentioned earlier uh, um, opioids work, especially fentanyl work in, doesn't take a whole lot but they they need in small doses for a long period of time. So the continuous was 12 hours. So the idea is you're getting oxycodone in your system over a 12-hour period. That's that's when you take the pill, it would just slowly release into your body. The problem is, is 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 users realize that you could get these things wet, you could crush them and snort them, and you could get the entire pill immediately. And then it's like Purdue doubled down or something. They went from 10 milligrams to 20 to 30 to 40, and they just kept on increasing the amount of, of oxycodone in in these pills. And it just became extremely addictive. And they were using crazy data telling folks that, that less than 1% of patients became addicted and a lot of things that just weren't true. Um, and they were whining and dining these doctors and and, 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 you know bringing these uh you know las vegas or reno and 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 showering with gifts and 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 parties and uh it's crazy and you look at their sales numbers literally under 50 million dollars in 1996 to over a billion dollars in 2000 just four years later over a billion dollars in sales yeah incredible and and the problem was is, is 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 the genie was out of the bottle i mean these pills were extremely addictive and, and literally, so now you're. That's the 1996 to 2000 level. So you look at a lot of these doctors who realize that, whoa, we, this isn't this isn't uh, a safe. I mean, it can be effective medicine for some people, but but there are a lot of folks that are just absolutely addicted to these pills, whether they're abusing them or whether they're just just became addicted from overuse, um, and they started to either wean them off or cut them off. And what happens when you have a, a, a an addiction? And your doctor, if you're if, if you're getting your pills from your doctor and he tells you, uh, he or she tells you you can't have them anymore, you either go to another doctor or you turn to the street. And a lot of these folks did exactly that. Uh, they, they, they started doctor shopping where they'd have multiple doctors getting prescriptions, giving prescriptions to them, or they'd turn to the street. And if they couldn't get pills, they turned to heroin. And if you look at heroin use, it actually spiked during this time period. Actually, if you look at all um, prescription drug use, it actually spiked during this time period. Literally in 1997, 1998, all, every single prescription drug out there just spiked. It was incredible. Um, and then it ultimately led to more heroin use. And then, uh, and then you also look at the number of people dying every year. I mean, like I said, when I was a police officer, four or five, 6,000 people a year. And during that time period, the mid late 1990s, we were up to like, let's say eight or 9,000 people a year. And then it jumped to 13,000 and then 15 or 16,000 and then 25,000. And now we're at 110,000 just in the United States alone. So, I mean, like I said, the, 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 the genie was out of the bottle. I mean, they released this pill, there was a lot of abuse. And then as they started to cut, cut that back, at least the doctors, not Purdue, when the doctors started to cut that back and these folks were going to more doctors that would prescribe them, or they would just turn to the street and they'd get, they'd get the, the either uh, illegal uh, counterfeit or other opioids off the street, or they'd turn the heroin. And, and like I said, at that time period, and that, that kind of really brings it all together, because at that time period fentanyl was really just a cut. You know, you'd see a little tiny bit of, of, of fentanyl and heroin. And then the traffickers realized that, hey, it's the same thing, but it's a lot cheaper and a lot more effective and we can get a lot more users. So it started to replace the heroin slowly. And like I said, now we're to the point where you can't really find heroin. It's it's very difficult to find heroin in some places or in most places.
0: It's crazy because, so the painkiller documentary for those who wouldn't know about it is like it's from the perspective of the guys at the top so Purdue Pharma you know the the Sackler family it's from the perspective of a sales rep who has a moral compass but is pushed to not see the the bad side of what OxyContin was doing to people they were sort of hiding that from her and also it's from the perspective of someone who has a severe injury and is prescribed OxyContin a guy who owns his own business and it ends up ruining his life and you know the way that it was pushed to doctors and stuff you know they'd send in these these women to doctors and they'd be like giving them gifts and like little pill teddies that they were handing out to all the doctors offices and stuff like that and it's like this is something that is meant to be serious and to treat pain in, in people not we're treating it like it's like it's some sort of like sweets for kids, like the, with the teddies and things like that. And it's it's wild in the way that they got away with that, and that's never been that, that side of it's never been punished.
1: Absolutely, and and sadly, uh, as I started to research more about opioids and and just addiction and drug use in America, uh, it's amazing the Sackler family. At least Arthur Sackler, one of the three brothers. Um, this wasn't the first time. I mean, he was involved in the campaign of value volume, which is diazepam, um, you know, from 1962 to 1982, it was number one selling uh, pharmaceutical. It was the first billion dollar drug. Wow. And it was a very aggressive advertising. And guess who was behind that? Arthur Sackler and his, his advertising uh, company. And you can literally go back in time and see some of the same things they were doing. Very, very aggressive campaign, uh, advertising and branding um, for other drugs. Um, in the forties and fifties and sixties, all the way up into, until when they bought, they bought Purdue Frederick in 1952, I believe. And his brothers, uh, Raymond and Mortimer went to work for him. And Raymond is the, uh, Sackler was the one, but he kind of knows from Purdue. Um, but literally the, the same, very, very aggressive uh, marketing and advertising campaigns um, and the way they, like you said, wind and dine these doctors. And uh, is shameless, absolutely. And, and and everyone always asks what's happening with the Sacklers now and the in the whole Purdue drama. It's it's so confusing. Uh, yes. I tell folks go to the internet and start reading because there was a bankruptcy and then there's all kinds of judgments from the courts and you know there I saw an article not long ago that's saying that uh, some of the family have a financial interest in some of the uh, naloxone and other drugs that are used to uh, to save people now who overdose from. From, from opioids I, I sure hope that's not true i did read an article um not long ago that that, that suggested that but wow uh, yeah absolute craziness
0: <laughs> hmm. it was also it wasn't even the doctors that they'd wind and died in obviously painkillers dramatized slightly so this may not be entirely correct but in in the documentary the guy who so the the, the guy at the fda who was dealing with the case of oxycontin refused them multiple times over a year Um, on grounds he was like, look, it doesn't need to be this potent and this, this is wrong with it and it looks highly addictive. And I think it was within the year after the guy had quit the FDA and was working for Purdue Pharma. And obviously they got approval because they'd wined and dined this guy so much that actually they'd taken away his morals and he was now just a part of it.
1: Yeah, he did go to work for Purdue. And you know, it's interesting. I mentioned the, the past and how, you know, we didn't learn from the past. You go back to, I believe it was 1959, FDA. I think his name was Henry Welch. Same type of issues that were going on. There was questions on whether or not there was accuracy in the advertising and branding of these, of these uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that uh, at least uh, Arthur Sackler was, was kind of behind. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, he went to work for uh, uh, for Purdue. Um, you got to, you know, you got to kind of scratch your head and, you know, and, and 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 make your own conclusion on on what happened there. Um, a lot of folks went to work for Purdue that were uh, that we uh, we thought were fighting Purdue or at least trying to hold them or make them accountable you know, getting FDA approval was a big deal. You know, if you, if you go back and look at the history of Oxycodone, I mean, it was, it was invented, I don't know, 1916, 1917, very, very, very addictive. And it wasn't until 1995. And it was literally under the promise that the, the, the pill would have a 12 hour release. And that's, that's how it literally got their FDA approval is that, that release period. They weren't going to have the the, the the whole pill immediately because it was so addictive. They needed that short that 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 that, that long release, just like the patches or the lollipops.
0: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. But now, obviously, we're what twenty five years on from when it really came to sort of explode and be sort of sort of the start of that opioid epidemic. How are they dealing with the prescription drug problem now in comparison to how they were dealing with it in the first 10 years?
1: Numbers are still up. Um, really, it's it's the counterfeit drugs that are the problem now. Um, prescription drugs are so expensive and, uh, and and sometimes they're harder to obtain. So A lot of folks just turn to the illegal market, the streets, and that's where the counterfeit pills, the counterfeit opioids have taken over. Um, the oxys, the hydrocodone. um, I mean, they're just, they're just flooded the streets and that's where the the fentanyl comes in because fentanyl is is literally in everything. Um, You know, not just cocaine and and, and meth and and, and heroin, but uh, you know, right now it's, it's six out of 10 pills seized contain at least two milligrams of fentanyl, six out of 10. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's uh, the counterfeits have taken over. I mean, it's, it's, I, can't, I don't want to say this the future because it's the present. It's, it's here.
0: From someone who's worked and seen everything as it is, like you've seen the problems on the streets, you've seen, you know, what the organizations can do and all this sort of thing. Is there more that can be done to prosecute this, these people and should it be done quicker?
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> um from my perspective, one of the most frustrating things is thats is that we're not working together. Um, I've said this before, but w- when I first went into management at the DEA, one of the things that I knew that I had to do was to start forming relationships with non-law enforcement folks, folks in the treatment, uh, prevention, recovery sector, and work with them, uh, folks in the medical community. And uh, I mean, 99% of the time, it was Rare that they would pick up my call on the on the first ring. Um, I mean, they had to they had to convince themselves that uh, that that I had good intentions that that I was actually trying to work with them. Um, but they just had no interest in talking to law enforcement, let alone the DEA. Um, but but we have to get out of our silos. I mean, it's incredible the amount of people trying to 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 do the right thing and 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 save people, which is commendable. But why aren't we working together for those efforts um i say this all the time i mean uh um if if we surround ourselves with the right people we can be a lot more effective a lot more efficient Um, so that's a struggle i mean we need more aggressive prosecution Um, i can say that now that i'm retired Uh, i've worked with a lot of great attorneys in my life a lot of great prosecutors but there are a lot who. uh, probably need to, to move on to a different career because we need to, to take an aggressive stance, especially against these high level folks that are bringing in thousands and thousands of pills and, and they're just devastating our communities. They really are. Um, and, and, and record numbers of people are dying, especially our young people. And it's sad and, it, and, and we've all got to do more. Um, you know, if I can say one more thing, the, the frustrating thing is too, is that no one really seems to care unless you've been impacted by this. I can't. I remember I had a friend of mine, a retired DEA agent out of um, Southern California, and he said, Hey, look, less than 1% of the people of parents are actually going to show up to your. I do a lot of presentations specifically on opioids and fentanyl. And uh, you know, so he said, Most people aren't, your audience is going to be more of, of what you expect, your law enforcement, your first responders, or people impacted by this. And I was like, no, 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 you know, and because and, I'd heard that before from other folks and I and I'm seeing it firsthand, you know, most of the time I, I, I do speak to first responders, but a lot of times uh, they'll be open to the public and uh, and we'll do some aggressive camp uh, uh, advertising, trying to get more people in those seats and 99% of the people that we get are literally been impacted by this. Whether they're in recovery themselves, or whether they're dealing with it in their families or their communities, um, most people just—it's—it's. It's, I don't know if it's out of sight, out of mind, or if we just want to bury our heads in the sand. i, I don't get it. I mean, we're losing three hundred people a day just in this country. What, what's the rest of the world losing? Yeah, it's incredible what's happening.
0: Mm. It is so scary to think about, and yeah, that is a problem. I think. I think it's with anything, though, isn't it? If you've never been affected by it, then you kind of push it aside and it's not anything to do with you. But as soon as it's somewhat, it hits you or hits a family member or a friend, you become the biggest advocate for whatever it may be. And it's, it's, it's a way that needs to change really.
1: I agree. Yeah. And and I'm happy those people are, are trying to find an outlet for that, for that pain and, and, and try to help more people so they don't have to feel the same things that they, you know, that they did after losing a son or a daughter or, or a close one. But, uh, but we got to figure out how to get past that. We need—I don't mean past the pain. I'm not—I don't—I'm not trying to minimize or 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 that at all. We need to—we need to figure out how to get past to the part where more folks are involved before those things happen, before their sons and daughters are taking these drugs. That—that's the goal: is is to to have a national, a world conversation uh, on how do we how do we how do we get ahead of this? How do we how do we because it's going to get worse. And, and, and that's, and we've seen that
0: after, did you say 28 years you've been in law enforcement? So after 28 years, what was it that led you to leave and find a new career path?
1: I, I love law enforcement, love the DEA. I worked with great people, um, but I felt like I was young enough for something different in my life. I just needed that, that mental break. I needed to do something different i've always had a love for for training and uh, i've always had a, a love for helping people and i thought you know i can help people in a different capacity i can help people through training um of my 28 year career in law enforcement four of those years were in a non-enforcement capacity i worked at our our uh, our training academy in quantico virginia and I uh, did a lot of in-service training. I helped start the first leadership and development unit for the DEA. And that's when I really, the seed was really planted where I thought, wow, I, I really wanna do this post uh, DEA. And, uh, and again, I, I, I turned 50 and thought, you know what? I, uh, I'm still young. I still have a lot of uh, passion left in me. Um, and as much as I love this career and as much as I love putting bad people in jail I needed to do something different, so uh, that's where I am now.
0: Is there anything that, like, since you retired from law enforcement, was there anything that made you think, like, oh, I, I kind of want to go back, or have you just since just, are you happy that you've left?
1: I, I am happy that I've left. Uh, it's a different career. I, I saw a lot of changes, uh, especially in the last two or three years. Um, I mean, law enforcement from, from, from federal to, to local levels are struggling with recruitment. Um, so I'm glad I don't have to mess with any of that stuff anymore. Um, what I do miss the most is holding these, these folks accountable, the drug traffickers accountable, you know, helping build these cases that we can bring to the U S attorney's office and prosecute these people and hopefully see them, uh, rot in prison. Um, you know, I miss that. (laughs) Um, I uh, I work with incredible, incredible, dedicated professionals. Um, very proud of the DEA and, and the organization that it is a great place to work, a wonderful mission. And I do miss that, the camaraderie, um, the mission, but, uh, but you know what? I, I uh, you got to turn page, the page sometime. You got to start new chapters sometime. And, uh, and that's, that's where I am now. So no regrets.
0: <laughs> so Eagle six training, you obviously created after you'd retired. So what specifically do you do you obviously said you hold talks for first responders and also open to the public but what is it that you do and what is the the sort of philosophy behind eagle six trainer
1: the philosophy really is to help people so the the big interest that and the big thing that we do is leadership training uh we like to work with leaders uh and just just people in general to to make them more effective um so that's that's our passion um i still work quite a bit with law enforcement um that's a that's a a career that i'm very familiar with and I na- i've navigated in that world for 28 years so so i know the i know the language uh, you know i i i fit in so so i'm still involved in that and i'm and it, it makes me happy to 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 work in that profession still in, in that capacity um but ultimately leadership um the other thing is is like you said the opioids and the fentanyl um I actually have kind of a a separate thing for that where, uh, I hold, uh, anywhere from two to four hour discussions on opioids, um, specifically fentanyl. And I talk about a lot of the same things that you and I just spoke about, um, today. Um, you know, I I try to give a very comprehensive overview. Um, I, I, started that, uh, initially for just first responders, police officers, but then I realized pretty quick, uh, that, uh, the public was really interested in this, Uh, at least certain segments of it, uh, medical community, a lot of recovery folks, uh, treatment folks, uh, prevention folks, things like that, uh, business uh, leaders. Um, So yeah, so that's, I do that uh, throughout the US. Um, I think I've put on, I think I'm at 20 or 21 presentations so far, which is great, I've been doing it since, since October, probably have another 10 or 15 scheduled. Um, I actually do it for free. I don't say that to brag or anything like that, but, uh, I pay my own, uh, when I travel, uh, throughout the U S I actually pay my own travel expenses. Uh, uh, if the organization can't, uh, you know, can't, uh, can't bear those costs because to me, this, this, this conversation is too important to have, not to have. So that's, uh. It's taken up a lot of time and, and, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's becoming a, it is a passion of mine, but that's becoming something that, uh, I want to do more and more of. And I'm actually looking at trying to get more into the schools. Um, it's a whole different conversation. It's more about, uh, uh arming them with information so they can make better choices. Uh, I know kids are gonna experiment with drugs, uh, but I, but I, uh, but I also know that they don't know the dangers. The drug the drug landscape has changed it's a lot different than it was 10 years ago it's a lot different than it was 20 30 40 years ago um, a lot of them don't know what, what fentanyl is you know um, the marijuana they use nowadays is a lot different' it's, it's a lot more potent um, um, the vaping you know I mean just everything that the schools are facing um, um, that's where I really want to get into is, is if I can if I can prevent one person, from making a choice that that can kill them then uh then i'm successful and and, and that's where i think uh, that's where i think i need to be is in that in that uh, in that place that i can hopefully help these
0: people it's amazing what it's amazing what you're doing just you know the fact you're willing to go and do these things for free and just just to push the message of what the problem is and how people can sort of deal with it is is incredible but so obviously you have said there that that's what you want to do is you want to push yourself into schools to sort of pro- get into the, the prevention more than anything. But other than that, how do you see the next sort of five to 10 years going for Eagle Six?
1: Hopefully very good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, th- this first year I've, I've, I'm trying to just build that foundation, you know, consistent branding uh, getting the name out there, um, and, and giving quality training. So when people, uh, you know, think about, uh, the training or the presentations, they, they, they leave with a, a good taste, you know, and, and, uh, and refer me to other folks and, 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 uh, you know, hopefully my phone rings and I get more business from it. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, it's been a great, uh, first year, like I said, the, just building that foundation is, and especially now, um, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's a tough economy, you know, and, and when, uh, when organizations are cutting back, unfortunately, one of the things they cut back is training, um, which is, which blows my mind away because we're asking our people to do more with less. So the last thing you want to do is say, Hey, I need you to do more with less. And by the way, we're not going to give you any training or development. And that's frustrating. Ooh, that's frustrating.
0: I, I t- Towards the end, obviously, like with Eagle 6 and everything, I'll link that in the description so people can find it. But I always ask people at the end the same question, and that's how would you like to be remembered?
1: As someone that cared and uh, who wants to help people.
0: Amazing. Where can people find you on socials, online, everything like that?
1: So e a g l e Six, just the number six training, T R A I N I N G dot com is my w- main website. If you'd like to learn more about my opioids and fentanyl presentation, please go to www.onlyonly, the number two, mg dot com. So only2mg dot com. And that page is dedicated just to the opioids and fentanyl presentation that I do. And it has my schedule on there. It has some resources uh, for parents or folks that are looking for more information on opioids um, so they can educate themselves and hopefully have those own conversations within their within their own four walls. Um, I'm, also, I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Eagle Six Training, or just Brian Townsend.
0: Amazing. All right, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. I really appreciate your time.
1: Hey, thank you. I, I appreciate you as well. And, and thank you for the opportunity.
0: I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Brian it's a it's an intense one but it was a really really insightful episode into what the the opioid problem is like and how it is affecting hundreds of thousands of people across America and obviously the millions across the world as well I think it's something that we we need to bring more light to and I feel like with what Brian is doing he's doing a really good job of that over over in the states so I appreciate him. I appreciate his time. You can find all his links in the description below. So make sure to check him out. And yeah, I will see you next week for another episode. But please remember, like, subscribe, share the podcast, all that shit, because without it, it, the podcast doesn't do that well. So yeah, appreciate it. Cheers.